Hypocrisy's the best policy. Wish for change, but lazily. Century of debilitation. Your evolution is a damnation. You know what that music means. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy Trav, a.k.a. 5-Minute Major, and welcome to a special off-season edition of HV Pucks. I'm proud to say this is the only independent outlet dedicated to covering the sport of hockey in our region. You do not need a newspaper or cable TV subscription to access my content. It is 100% free and available on Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You know, one of the things I enjoy the most about hosting this podcast is when I get to sit down with players, coaches, parents, and fans to talk pucks. I've known Mike Schoenbach for a long time and had the opportunity to sit down with him recently to talk about the history of Hudson Valley hockey. For those of you who may not be aware, Mike was responsible for assigning the off-ice officials on the Rockland County side of Section 1 during John Orlando's tenure. He was also the creative force behind the wildly popular Section1Hockey.com website and is currently the master scheduler for North Rockland's youth hockey program. Enjoy. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's your boy, Trav, a.k.a. 5-Minute Major, and this has been a long time coming. I'm sitting with Mike Schoenbach. Uh, Mike has a long history with the sport of hockey in uh, the Hudson Valley, in particular Section 1. Uh, he was responsible for scheduling off-ice officials during John Orlando's tenure as the Section 1 hockey chairman. Uh, he is the creative force behind the wildly popular Section1Hockey.com website, and he's currently uh, the master scheduler for the North Rockland Youth Hockey Program. Um, I had his counterpart from Westchester County, Stephen Vallis, on a few months ago. So again, Mike, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so, you know, I kind of glossed over it during the intro, but how long have you been connected to hockey and what is it that you love about the sport? Um, I've been connected to hockey probably as a fan and showing up at games since I was three years old, so going on 40 years at this point. Um, you know, my mother is Canadian and my brother's four years older than me, so he started learning how to skate and then... He was a goalie, so goalies at that age, they're playing on three, four, five different teams. So I was in the back of the car going to games all over the area um, from the time I was a little kid. Um, and then eventually both my brother and my father wound up getting part-time jobs at Sportorama. And then once I was old enough, I started working there. I started doing the clock for games when I was like in like first grade. Um and I've just been tied to it ever since. Yeah, and for those of you that don't know, definitely look up the name Rob Schoenbach. Uh, I graduated with Rob, watched him, you know, in between the pipes uh, many a night uh, for suffering a hell of a goalie. Yes. So, um, what are some of the most exciting or memorable high school games that you've witnessed firsthand? Um, I mean, first and foremost, the 92 state championship game. Um I never, my skating career never really took off, so I wasn't really a hockey player, but I was very involved in the program when 
I went to Suffern. Um, I was the 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 timer, scorekeeper, announcer for the team. I was also the statistician for the team. I was a team manager. Um, so at that championship game, even though I wasn't playing, I was actually on the bench at the game. Um, and it was just, it, it was incredible um, to watch the overtime game. I mean, we, Suffern had never had great luck in the state tournament. Um, and then to finally get there, and that Messina team was twice the size as us. And John Orlando shortened the bench to about nine skaters and a goalie. Wow. And we still managed to pull it off in overtime. Um, still to this day, one of the most exciting sporting events I've ever watched in my life. Um, outside of my high school age, to come to mind, both the 2012, um, not so much the state championship game, but the semifinal game sure. um, that went into the shootout was outstanding. And I think it was either the year before, maybe two years before, Willie North came down to Sporto for the state quarterfinal game. Um, and that was just an incredible game. Um, favorite rink? Now, I know I, I usually run into you at Sportorama. Is it safe to say that that's your favorite rink to watch a high school yeah, game? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, I grew up in Sportorama. I mean, it's, it's been my second home since I was about three years old. So, um, you know, and, and I know my way around that entire building. And, you know, I've spent much of my life watching games there. So that's definitely my favorite. You know, that's a standard question for me whenever I interview a, a player and nine times out of ten, they say that's one of the hardest rinks to play in because the fans are really yeah. right on top of you. And um, but yeah. that's part of the beauty of it. Absolutely, you know, like I, I love that the, the 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 fans are right there, and you could pack, you know, somewhere between eight hundred to a thousand people Absolutely. in there, and it, they're just they're right on top of you. Um, you know, now that I'm older, I have three kids all playing travel hockey. And now I'm starting to experience more rinks. Sure. You know, when I was a kid traveling around watching my brother play, there weren't as many rinks in the area. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's section one. We're limited to a handful of rinks. Now I'm going into Jersey. I'm going to Connecticut. I'm going upstate and I'm seeing so many more. I'm starting to realize there are a lot of really nice rinks. Absolutely. My heart is still with Sportorama. Sure. But there's some really nice rinks out yeah. there. <laughs> you can't replace, I mean, the history... You know, say what you will, because um, I've I've seen my fair share of rings too. But there's nothing like sport around. Yeah. Um, what was the biggest challenge when it came to assigning the off ice officials when you were responsible for doing that under John Orlando's tenure? Um, most of it was just getting coverage for the games. Um, I had a relatively small crew. You know, seven, eight people. You know, and then one guy that would just come in and help out, you know, right. a couple games a year when I was in a pinch. Um, and while I could have gotten more people, they were the people that I trusted, the people that I know if, you know, if Clarkstown North called me up and said, hey, we rescheduled this game that was supposed to be on Saturday, but it's tonight, at, you know, in an hour, we forgot to tell you. I, I had people that I know I can rely on that could, could get there. Um, and then sometimes if I couldn't get somebody, I wound up having to do the games myself. I mean... I did a lot of games anyway, but, um, you know, on the nights that I wasn't supposed to be doing a game, I didn't want to do a game. You know, I was supposed to make plans with my wife and go out, and then right. all of a sudden, 
I got a call that there's a game going on. Well, we were going to the mall to eat anyway, and it's a Nyack <laughs> game. And uh, yeah, I guess I could just go over and do that, and we'll just go eat afterwards. Yeah. And my wife would sit there grumbling in the stands and then go and shop for a little bit and come back after the game. There's a sign in my house that reads, we interrupt this marriage to bring you hockey yes. season. I'm sure that's very appropriate here, my, too. My wife refers to herself as a hockey widow. <laughs> um, once, the, once the season rolls around, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty much out of the picture. I'm sure it takes on a little bit of a different meaning, though, too, for both of you since you're parents and you have kids. Yeah, I mean, hey, and it was more so now with the kids playing, it's... Um, it's more of a joint effort. I mean, she's great with it where, you know, I don't get home from work. As you saw earlier this evening, I don't get home from work until about 6.45, 7 o'clock. Right. And anybody listening that has kids playing hockey or that plays themselves, you know, practices are, especially for youth hockey, they're generally younger. My kids are, are 8, 10, and 14. Um, so they're, they're playing, or, well, they're 7, 9, and 13, but they're playing 8U, 10U, and 14U. Right. So, um, you know, their practices are generally a little bit earlier, so I can't really get to them. But on the weekends, you know, there's two of us and there's three of them, and we have to be in every one of the rinks. So it's a joint effort. Before, when I was doing the off-ice officials for the varsity games and the website, um, that was all me. Right. So I was I would disappear and... You know, in order to keep family time together on Saturdays, I'd be waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go and grab the, the score sheets that were sent over to me the night before yep. and enter all the stats. And I work in the city, so I have an you know, hour and a half commute on the train. So I bring my laptop with me every day. And as soon as I sat down, laptops open, entering stats, you know, running through the score sheets sure. and scores from the night before. Um, so it was just, it was a lot of... A lot of work before yeah. the kids were were involved. And we've talked a lot about this, you know, and certainly now with family and work and other responsibilities, but no one has come close to doing what you were able to do with that website. Yeah, and I, I mean, I hope that somebody does. I mean, you know, nowadays they're, they're teaching kids how to, how to code and build websites yep. and write HTML and other languages and stuff. From the time they're they're in elementary school, sure. You know, I'm self-taught. I learned it in my my mid to late twenties, and then started applying it to the website. Um, but kids are learning it at a young age, so hopefully, there's somebody that is able to do it. And for anybody listening that is able to do it, I have a wealth of stuff from when I had the website between yeah. stats and pictures sure. and everything. And if anybody starts up a website, I will gladly give them whatever they need because. In reality, most of the stuff I got was stuff that I got from other people just calling up former coaches and current sure. coaches and former players. And then eventually, once this, the thing was up and running, I get emails from people like, oh, my, you know, I graduated from Amaranik in the late 70s and my husband went to Rye and I was just at his mother's house and we were in the attic and I found a bunch of old yearbooks. Do you want them? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, if you mail them to me, I will scan what I need and mail it right back. Or if you want to just give them to me or you want to scan them in and send me stuff, whatever you have, I will take. Yeah. So I'm perfectly willing to pass it along to anybody because I'd love to 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 see it happen. Um, you know, the whole thing started because um, the Journal News just wasn't pulling their weight at the time. Mm-hmm. Um and part of it, that was on the coaches, too. They wouldn't call in scores, right. and things weren't updated, and we were having trouble 
as playoff time was starting to approach, John Orlando and I were on the phone and talking about it, and we couldn't we couldn't get accurate standings to figure out what the playoffs would be, and you have to kind of work on that early. Sure. It's, you know, when you're talking about a sport like basketball or baseball or football, every school has the, the, the field or the court on their school grounds. Right. You need to schedule a game? Great. It got rained out? Good. We'll just do it tomorrow. Ice hockey isn't so much. You're yeah. dealing with private businesses, and they have the ice booked from 6 in the morning until midnight for every ice surface in the area, so it's tough to get. So um, you need to know early, like, all right, this team has a shot at hosting a playoff game. That team has a – so we could work with the rink owners to say, okay, block off a few hours on this date and a few hours on that date because we might need it. So um, – I went to him and I said, look, I know how to write HTML code. Um, and because I'm dealing with the minor officials, I get all the score sheets anyway. So if, you know, what about if we just kind of, all the score sheets came to me, the Westchester guys would send them to me too. Yep. And I would handle the stats. I would handle the standings. I would handle the scores. And I could put it up on the internet. And... Before he even got, this was in an email. Before he even got back to me to say go ahead and do it, I was cc'd on an email that he sent out to all the coaches in the league saying, "Mike Schoenbach's putting together a website for us. Just letting you guys know." And then came back to me and said, "Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you're, you're doing it now. Right, you're volunteering. Like, I, I wanted it to be the beginning of a discussion, right. but I guess." I'm in with both feet. Yeah. So, um, and it was great. It was a, it was difficult. It was a lot of work. Yep. But it was a, it was a labor of love. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm chatting with Mike Schoenbach. Mike has a long connection to high school hockey in the Hudson Valley, in particular Section One. This is your boy Trav, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, this is your boy Trav, and I'm sitting with Mike Schoenbach. Uh, we're talking about the history of Hudson Valley hockey. Um, Mike, who are some of the dominant high school players or teams from throughout the years? I know that you were uh, responsible for assigning off-ice officials. You're an off-ice official yourself. Um, you had the website. So, you know, just uh, anything that stands out as far as dominant players, teams, or performances. Um, you know, as a, as a whole... Throughout history, dominant team starts with Suffern. Um, I'm not saying that just because I grew up there. Right. But, you know, like Suffern is one of those teams where, you know, even in their down years, that same season for most other teams in the section would be a dream. Yeah. Um, but there are other teams that fit into that category. I mean, Pelham probably over the last 15 years maybe has gotten to that point too where – you know, Eddie Witts, even in a year where they, they, you know, they've had years where they win seven games and they're still winning the section because right. they're that good. Yep. Um, so even in their off years, you're still really good. Mamaronek, over my time watching high school hockey, has had a few stinkers in their past, but in recent years, they're always at the top, too. Um, 
And then there's always ones that kind of drift in and out. It's never just those three. Rye has had more good seasons than off seasons too. Um, but they do. They have had a few, you know, really down years yeah. in the past too. And then there's always ones like Clarkstown North comes to mind. White Plains comes to mind. John Jay of like North Rock in the last few years. They'll, that'll just kind of like, they get a good crop of players or a good thing going on. They get on a roll and they have... You know, a run of you know a half a dozen years um, where they're just they're at the top in that same conversation, and then they go back to a rebuilding phase, and then you know they drift in and out. When I was in high school, it was Suffered and Clarkstown South on this side of the river, and Rye on the other side of the river. When I graduated, Mamaroneck had moved into the question too, but then a few years later, Clarkstown South wasn't as good, and Clarkstown North all of a sudden became dominant. So it just kind of fluctuates. Um, you know, as far as players go, um, you know, I watched John Foster play for Suffern, uh, the Daniels twins playing for Suffern, Steve Santini, um, you know, uh, Kevin Hill was great, uh, Nichols, uh, Nicholas, um, from Scar- Nicholas, yeah, from, from Scarsdale, Scarsdale was, it was phenomenal. And um, Clarkstown North, that one year, I want to say it was probably at least 10, 12 years ago, where they had the two Willows brothers and the two Schumann brothers. So the older ones were both seniors, the younger ones were both sophomores. And good Lord, those four kids never left the ice the whole season. Um, (laughs) It was was insane. Like they did, I'm not even sure that North had a second line. And I I couldn't even tell you who the fifth player on the ice was. They might have been playing shorthanded, but... They won a lot of games, and they did a lot of scoring with just those four kids. Um, and if whoever the fifth person on that line was is listening right now, I apologize. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they were really dominant, too. And then, you know, going back to, you know, I was watching Suffering Hockey games from the, the 80s, so you have, like, Kevin and Tommy McCarron, sure. and Rob Schelling was outstanding, and, I mean... I don't want to, you know, I feel like I'm promoting, self-promoting here, but my brother was incredible. No, you got to put Tommy Natoli. Yeah, Natoli is in that same conversation. So there's there's been a lot of great ones throughout the year, throughout the years. Yeah, I would agree. And the fact that, again, it kind of started with Suffren, and Suffren still has that reputation, that proud tradition, but now we've got other programs that are starting to, you know, build up and and make a name for themselves. So kind of sticking with that theme, are there any coaches or officials who stand out in your mind for their contributions to the game? Um, Well, I mean, if I could toot my own horn, I mean, I was an official and... (laughs) Absolutely. um, But I'm not going to toot my own horn there. Um, That conversation starts, obviously, with John Orlando. Um, you know, built the suffering program up. Uh, it, it always had great teams under him, and it wasn't just building up the suffering program. I mean, when he was there, that's what it was. Right. But what's happened is so many teams, whether they admit it or not, so many programs have kind of modeled themselves after what they were doing, starting with when Rob Schelling took over at Suffern right. and, you know, took it over and didn't and he didn't go in and make wholesale changes, kind of worked with what was there, but then other programs kind of started following the same mold, building it up from the youth levels and traveling upstate. And I know John Zegers from Rye was doing that too, but John Zegers was coaching there when I was a kid. I think he retired maybe when I was a freshman in high school, maybe a sophomore. So I didn't really see him too much. I knew who he was and I knew his contributions. But 
you know, when I was a kid, Suffern and Rye were the only ones going upstate. Right. Now, I mean, the the, the weakest teams in the section are going upstate. Right. Um, you know, it, it, sometimes you're getting the butts handed to them. Sure. But that's what Suffern was doing when they started right. going upstate, too. They were going up and... They'd find their way up to Messina, and they'd come back having lost by double digits, and and it was a learning experience. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's it starts with him, but the tradition has been kept on with guys like Eddie Witts and Chaparelli and um, and Schelling and Gary Dworkowitz in North Rockland, uh, Howie Rubenstein in White Plains. Like, there's a lot of guys that kind of have done a really good job building up their programs. Yeah. I mean, in the wake and, of that. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because, you know, you mentioned it, 92 Suffern wins, 2012 Suffern wins, 2016 Mamaroneck, 2017 Pelham, and now you've got teams coming down yes. on the regular to play in Ed's tournaments or in the Guy Matthews tournament in White Plains. So we've developed into, like, somewhat of a hockey hotbed here. So that's one of the reasons why I decided to put this uh, this podcast together. Yeah, um, and I was now, I, I mean, with the, because everybody, always viewed it as a you know like a cupcake type of section because there was only ever you know there was only ever one team that really went upstate right with two suffering and rye like sure. nobody knew that there was like for all they knew they were only two teams in the section um <laughs> but you know being so close to new york city sure you would think that the teams from upstate would look for it as a destination right and they never really did right you know why do you think that is I, I don't know. I think it was just they wanted to make sure that they made the trip worth it. Nobody wants to drive, you know, four hours from Messina or six hours from Buffalo to win a couple of games where your your fourth line is playing the entire third period. Right. Um, just because you get to go see the Statue of Liberty. Sure. You know, I mean, I with with the kids in youth hockey and, um, you know, I do all the scheduling for the North Rockland Youth Hockey Association. So I have teams that come down from upstate. Um, you know, we brought in a team from Syracuse last year to play our Mike team. I knew that we weren't going to be strong enough to it, but they wanted to come down. The coach graduated from North Rockland, so he wanted to come down. He wanted to bring all the kids in so they could go into the city for a day. So we bring them down. But, I mean, for high school, you got a 20-game season. Youth That's hockey, it. youth hockey, you could you could play as many games as you want. Sure. So throw away a game on a trip to New York City. Right. High school, you got twenty games. They're all yeah. precious, and if you're in a section with a lot of teams, sure, you got a lot of e games too. Yeah, you know, so it, it's it's tough to throw away on that. But now that they know there's other there's other teams that they could face, sure, they're all coming down. Um, are there any I can't believe I just saw that happen moments which come to mind? Yes, and I knew you were going to ask this one, and I, <laughs> I see I that have, smile. I have two of them. Sure, they're both from the same Final Four in Utica. Okay. Both from the same player. Okay, um, who actually suffering as an aside, suffering just did their their annual golf outing. Sure, um, earlier this week where they do their Hall of Fame inductions, and the player that I'm about to speak about, his name is Adam Gordon. He was a defenseman, graduated in '92. Um, and was just inducted into the Hall of Fame a couple of days ago. Um, so it was the 92 state, the final four. Um, there were two moments that he had in there. Now, you've been to the Odd in yes, Utica? Yes, yes. Okay, so it has that black roof. Yep. And I never understand why arenas ever put a black roof there. The puck <laughs> is black. It's kind of like, you know, if you're a baseball fan in Tampa Bay, they have a white roof over right. the stadium. 
Who's going to see a baseball up there? Who's going to see a hockey puck on a black roof? So Adam's a defenseman, and he takes a slap shot, deflects off a stick, like right, it's somebody else's stick, like right there. The puck goes up probably 30, 40 feet in the air, knuckling through the air towards the goal. The goalie from the, from the other team is just standing. He has no idea where the puck is. He can't see it looking up. And all you could do at that point is just stand there, and I know nobody on the radio can see, stand there like this and just hope that it bumps into you. He has no idea where the puck is. It comes down and bounces right into the crease. Two hops right next to him. He never even looks down, goes right in. Wow. Scores a goal. Amazing. It was, it's one of those. Outrageous. Like, it, it, was, it was a sight to see, and it's one of John Orlando's like, go-to stories. Sure. If you sit down and talk to him, oh, yeah. at some point he'll work his way around to that. The other from that same Final Four, the same thing. Now, Adam, if you ever anybody who's listening, if you ever watched him play, he was a big, scary dude. Never came off the ice other than when he took a penalty. So he's good for you know maybe like three, four and a half minutes of downtime during a game. And at one point during the game, he lost his stick. wasn't close enough to the bench to go back and get another stick. So as many hockey players do, you just skate around and you, you know, you look, you know, like you're playing soccer out there. You're trying to do what you can with your feet. So a kid on the other team has the puck. He's up against the boards. Adam comes over, throws a check on him against the boards and then skates away. And all of a sudden he has a stick in his hand. And the kid who he just knocked down does not have a stick. So... (laughs) I mean, I've been watching hockey a long time, and I'm sure there's a penalty in there somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure the referee, if he realized what was happening, would have called something but wouldn't have known what to call. Right. But he went in. He threw the body check. While he was in there, he grabbed the kid's stick. stick and the kid away. probably wasn't holding on to it tight because he never expected it. And he skated away, and now he was playing with this kid's stick until the next <laughs> whistle. Whistle blew. He just dropped the stick, went over and picked up his own stick, went back. Unbelievable. See, and this is the kind of stuff... Um, that I that I like talking about. I love hearing these stories. This is exactly why I wanted to have you on. <laughs> um, one more question before we take our next break. Any embarrassing on-ice uh, moments involving a coach or an official that you can share? Well, the official that I'm going to talk about is myself. Okay. Um, you know, I, I don't want to embarrass anybody else, but I'm Understood. okay embarrassing myself. Understood. Especially since there's about 3,000 people that saw it. <laughs> um, or maybe it wasn't 3,000, but a lot of people. So it was back when Section 1 was doing the um, the championship games up at West Point. Sure. And um, anybody who had ever seen me timing the suffering game, especially in my youth, knew that when I got on the ice over at Sporto down you know, in the corner over yep. by the offices, was going over the timers booth, I would run across the ice. I mean, it, it had just, the, the Zamboni had just finished. The ice is all wet. It's all as slippery as could be. And I would sprint across the ice, and I'd stop running about, like, 15, 20 feet before I get to the bench and just slide right to the door and go in. And I wasn't doing it to show off. I was just doing it because it's fun. Right. Um, so I'm used to doing it at Sporto. I'm not so much used to doing it at West Point, And the ice is different at yeah, West Point. Sure. Um, better. But um, but different. So um, I was timing the game, the section championship game. It was a suffering game. Coming back out to the timers booth after the, I don't remember if it was after the first period or after the second period. I was doing the game with Stefan and George Vallis. Um, Stefan and George are not as adventurous as me and going across the ice. They right. walk on, they right. hold on to the boards. We talked about that. They walk around the boards to the thing. 
So I'm, you know, the door to get on the ice at West Point is right behind one of the goals. Yep. Um, so I'm making, you know, shortest distance between two points, straight line. I'm going straight across. And I lose my balance. <laughs> now, this is during the Suffern game. I'm from Suffern. I live in Slotesburg. Yep. I know everybody in the crowd. <laughs> I slip. I fall. I'm going backwards. I land. I throw my elbows behind me instinctively. In hindsight, that's never a good idea. Yeah. That's how you break both your elbows. <laughs> throw my elbows behind me. I land. And as soon as I hit the ice, my first instinct is get up quick before anybody notices. So I try and spring right to my feet, but I didn't get my balance. So I get about halfway up and my feet go out from under me and I go right back down. Unreal. And everybody's laughing in the stands and I give everybody a thumbs up and I get up and I get over to the bench. My elbow was hurting for probably six months afterwards. Uh. And talking to people in the crowd afterwards, they all said my head when I went back, when I went down probably came within a half an inch of hitting the ice, Oof. which... Would have been really bad. Yes. Um, but luckily, because I threw my elbows back and dealt with that elbow pain for six months, um, my head didn't hit the ice. Um, but yeah, so that's one of the just, you know, as an aside, that's where the the, the, the fine line, paper thin line between comedy and tragedy yes, comes in. Yes, absolutely. That, that same exact story, if it ended with me hitting my, my head on the ice... Everybody in the crowd would have gone silent. There would have been an ambulance. There would have been yep. a blood stain on the ice. It would have been awful. The fact that I was able to get up and give that thumbs up to the right. crowd and go back to the thing, right. it's hysterical. And I still get people ripping on me about it to this day. <laughs> Speaking of, of uh, West Point, <laughs> that's one of the more iconic places to, to see a game. I remember the year Suffering won in 2012. That was the last time I think I saw yeah. uh, a game up there. But um you know, who knows what the future is going to bring. So let's take one more break. Um, so I'm sitting here chatting with Mike Schoenbach. We're, we're um, talking a lot about the history of Hudson Valley hockey, talking about players, coaches, teams. And uh, we'll be right back after this. Hey, we're back. This is your boy, Trav, and we're talking with Mike Schoenbach about the history of Hudson Valley hockey. Uh, Mike has a long um, connection, long-standing connection to the sport. Uh, he was responsible for assigning the off-ice officials during John Orlando's tenure as Section 1 hockey chairman. He's also the creative force behind the very popular website, Section1Hockey.com, um, and he is now the master schedule for North Rockland's um, youth entire youth hockey program. So, Mike, we touched on this a little bit in some of the previous conversations, but can you describe the state of hockey in Section 1? Um, it's been getting a lot better over the years, um, you know, from my time starting out. Like I said earlier, you know, when I was younger, it was Suffern and it was Rye yeah. and then whoever else had a good run for a couple of years. And now, you know... There are still teams that have a good few years run as maybe they have a good player coming through the organization like, 
you know, when Steve Santini passed through JFK or when um, Brett Pesci passed through Sleepy Hollow, Irvington. But, um, but now it seems like you have three or four teams that are always at the top between Suffern, Mamaronek, Pelham, and then you have more than just one or two other teams that are in the conversation. You know, you usually have a few to a point where in the past... The, the the championship games, who was going to be playing them were a foregone conclusion. Sometimes even the, the semifinal games were going to be a sure. foregone conclusion from the beginning of the year. Now, uh, you don't even know who's going to make it yeah. Um, because there's so many good teams yeah. and it's only getting better, again, with teams coming down and playing with what Eddie Witts is doing over at Pelham with the, with the tournament where it seems to be – he changes the name of it every year yep. because he just keeps inviting more teams. Uh, the, I think it was the eight. It right, was grade it was eight, eight and then it became the, the – fabulous 15 yeah. and now it's up to 21 Yeah, so over I, two weekends. I so. mean at some point he's just going to invite every team in the entire state down <laughs> and just book every hotel within 30 miles of Mount Vernon. Um, but it's – yeah, I mean it's, it's getting so much better and – you know, I'm not going to go into it, but there are things going on in Section 1 that are going to, I think, are going to be a turn for the better. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's hockey's always taken a backseat to basketball and football. Sure. And to a certain extent, it always will in this area. We're not right. in Minnesota. We're not in Boston. Right. Um, it's always going to take a backseat, but it doesn't have to be so far in the back. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be the backseat of a stretched limo. Maybe it could be the backseat of a sedan. Maybe it could be <laughs> kind of close to the other ones. Um, but, you know, it's it's just becoming so much more popular in yep. the area. And now with the, the girls league that's about to start up this season, sure. there's just going to be that much more interest in it. And um, things are just getting great. Yeah, I definitely want to touch on the uh, Hudson Valley Girls High School Ice Hockey um, League. I got a couple more questions for you before we get to that, though. Um, you know, there are some big changes coming to New York State hockey overall with the 2018-19 season. So I'd like to get your thoughts on the implementation of 17-minute periods, two-minute penalties, and the video review. Um, all right, so I'll take them in that order. 17-minute periods I don't think is overly necessary. Um, it's, it's making the games longer. Yep. It's probably going to upset a lot of refs because it's making the game six minutes longer. Sure. From a business standpoint, just because I've been dealing with Sportorama and working there my whole life, it's a nightmare from that because you schedule a slot that you know, you know how long the game is going to take. Now you need longer slots. Sure. Um, so Sportorama always schedules two hours for a varsity game. They're going to have to start scheduling two hours and 15 minutes for a varsity game. Hmm. Um, Brewster usually does an hour and 50 minutes for a varsity game. They're going to have to bump it up to at least two hours to cover that extra six minutes. And not only is that a time constraint because you got a lot of youth hockey teams and rentals and public sessions and beer leagues and, and, you know, that have to get their ice time in. And now, if, you know, Brewster has what, 11, 12 teams playing out of there? Playing 10 home games apiece. Now you need an extra 15 minutes per home game per every one of those teams. It's a lot of ice slots you have to get rid of. Now, on the overall, I mean, ice is ice. You're still renting it out for the same amount of time, same amount of money. Um, 
So the business itself is no, but you have to turn away business. And the last thing I want to see anybody do is turn away hockey players. Yeah. You know, you turn away enough slots, a youth hockey program might fold because they don't have anywhere to play. Yeah. Now you have a bunch of displaced kids. So it's it's not great. And then from a cost perspective from the schools in this day and age, everybody's trying to cut corners in the budget. Yep. You know, I don't know if, if everybody out there knows how much ice costs. For you people upstate, prepare to laugh at this amount. But ice in this area runs for about $525 an hour. So if I now need to add another 15 minutes to a game. Sure. You know, now we're talking another like hundred fifty bucks that's being added. I know upstate there it's saying, Oh, fifteen minutes is nothing, it'll be an extra twenty dollars. But right. it's you know, like down here it's a big deal. So, yeah. you know, when you're strapped for cash and now you're adding another, you know, a few grand to your hockey budget because of this, it's tough. Um now the two minute penalties, that should have been done years ago. Okay. There's no reason for it to be a minute and a half. Sure. A minute and a half is a shift. Yeah. You know, like, uh, it, you know, if these teams, the kids are all have enough stamina that they're out there for a minute and a half. So if I'm out there with my line and I trip someone and I go sit in the box and my coach changes to the other to the second line for a minute and a half and then my penalty's up, I hop right back out. He changes right back to my line. What, what, you know, like, yes, the other line played man down, but like I wasn't my team was punished. I wasn't punished. Right. Two minutes. It's a little bit long for a shift. Like, you, you, you're going to have to have a line change during the penalty. You're going to have to have two penalty kill units because of this. So it's a big difference. Um, you know, and on top of that, my daughter is it just finished up her second year of Wee's 12U this past year, playing 15-minute penal- 15 15 periods, two-minute penalties. So my seventh-grade daughter was playing two-minute penalties, right. but this 18-year-old high school senior... He's sitting for a minute and a half when right. he does something. It's like it just it doesn't make sense to do it that way. In every other state, New Jersey's always had two minute penalties. Sure, Connecticut two minute penalty. Everywhere's got two minute penalties, but except New York for whatever reason. So I'm really happy to see that happening. Good. Um, and we talked about this over dinner, which was delicious, yeah. by the way. Um, video. I'd review. like to say thank you, but I had nothing to do with it. It was all my life. <laughs> um, yeah, video review. Um, I like the idea of it. My only concern with it is they need to make sure that the people doing the reviews know what they're doing. Um, My fear is there's going to be some guy who's older and, you know, he's been refing games for years, but maybe he's not fast enough to keep up with with the better players nowadays, but he still wants to be involved. So the head of the section says, you know what, let's put you in charge of the video review because... You know, like you, you can't keep up at this pace, but this way you're still doing something. Well, now we're talking a 70 year old man who could barely operate his iPhone, <laughs> and now you're telling him, Here, you're going to be in charge of the camera from four different angles and rolling the film back and forth and seeing it. He doesn't know how to do that. Sure. So, it might, as long as they get the right people in there, yeah. and it's not like it takes a ton of training, um, but as long as they get the right people in there, great. If it could overturn one wrong call, which I the my the first one that jumps to mind is the Pelham game up in up in Utica, right? You know, we, a few years ago, the back, phantom goal, the phantom goal that knocked them out of the semifinals. Um, if they could change one of those plays, sure, then it's it's worth it. Or the Justin Tiso, you know, everybody in the rink saw it. I think it was against Scarsdale, yeah. and Brewster. 
Yeah. Like, so the gold judgment. You know, there's a few of them. And I think they're also talking about doing it for like to reset time on the clock. Sure, the clock absolutely. There was one game up in Utica a few years ago. Um, I want to say probably five, six years ago. I State semifinal game. Suffern was up there. Um, there was a penalty. Suffern was down by a goal late in the game, probably less than a minute and a half left. Yeah, we talked about this Yeah, earlier. and um, one of the kids on Suffern, I feel like it was John Redgate. Sure. It might have been yep. somebody else. Took a penalty. They went to go put it up on the board. And for years of running the clock at games, I know exactly what happened. The guy accidentally put the minute 30 up on the game clock instead of the penalty clock. Unfortunately, he hadn't written down the time that was on the clock on the score sheet before doing this, so nobody knew what time was left on the clock. I knew because I had looked up there. Most of the fan base knew because they were looking at how much time was left to score this this tying goal. Um, So when they figured out what time to put back up on the clock, it was like 10, 15 seconds short of what was actually on the clock. But that's what the refs decided, and the right. timer swore up and down that that's what was left. So that's what they did. If there is instant replays pointing at the clock, they would have known exactly how much time was left. Right. Um, so as long as that doesn't get bogged down with somebody saying like, oh, the whistle blew when there was 49.8 seconds left, but when you stopped the clock, there was 49.2. I want the extra .6 seconds up there. That's just going to make the the third period of a of a state playoff game look like the last two minutes of a basketball sure. game, and we don't want that. Not to offend any basketball players out there, but <laughs> we don't want that in hockey. You know, the one thing that I I didn't mention earlier with some of the rule changes is that they've also statewide implemented a ten minute warm up and two ice cuts. Right. So I think that's also going to cut into. The time right, and, and that again makes just makes the games longer. longer. I mean, in section one, we've been doing a ten minute warm up for for at least a dozen years, right. like across the section, every sure. game, every team. Um, two ice cuts right. usually depends on the rank in the game. Right. I Homic, mean, it, Homics usually gets one. Yeah, you know the games I've been to. Sporto Sporto's always had three. Always does the the, the every intermission. Yeah. Um, some rinks only do the one. Um, sometimes if it's a blowout game. Like at Sporto, you know, when they change the leagues to geographical and all of a sudden put Suffern in the same division as Nyack Tappan Z, and, you know, that's a game. It's Suffern versus Nyack hasn't been a competitive game in many, many years. Right. Um, so, it, like, those games are usually... I mean, blowouts by by the end of the first period already. So sometimes with something like that, they'll say, all right, let's just skip the second ice cut. Right. Get, get out, out of here, here a little bit quicker. The, the game's in running time anyway after a 10-goal lead. We'll just get out of here. But um, but I do like the two ice cuts, especially at this level. I mean, sure. you know, I got a kid playing squirts. They don't need an extra ice cut. But, right. you know, at the varsity level, the, the game is all over the ice real fast. And yep. the ice is getting real scratched up real quick quick so um i like that but again just adds time to the game are there we talked about a lot of the new implementations and and things that have been approved but are there any changes you'd like to see made to the sport um at the game level um one thing that they instituted in usa hockey for the youth hockey this year which i thought was great and it's it was a long time coming and a lot of people hate it um, but they got rid of the ability to ice the puck when you're man down. As far as I'm concerned, the the uh, allowing somebody to ice the puck when you're man down, I understand the reason for it, but it's the stupidest rule ever. 
in any sport. Yeah. I mean, I I do something wrong. I hook a guy, I slash a guy. I get punished for breaking that rule. But as part of my punishment, the rest of my team is now allowed to break this other rule yeah. as often as they want for the next two minutes. Right. It's It makes no sense. Like, part of the penalty should be, yeah, the puck is going to be in your zone for two minutes because you're man down. Right. Don't hook that guy next time and you won't be in this situation. But you're giving, a, you know, an advantage to them. And when they first did that in youth hockey, a lot of people looked at it like, oh, that's so stupid. That's what it and you just have to sit people down and explain to them, no, you think it's that way because you've been watching it the other way your whole life and right. you're used to it and you fear change. So I, I I love that they did away with that in youth hockey. I'd love to see them do away with it in high school hockey. Um, it'd be a great change. As far as on a more like broader view, um, and I've mentioned this to you in the past. I've mentioned it to anyone with two ears in the past that I've gotten on this topic with, but... For the state playoffs, at least in Division One, what I'd love to see is essentially there are eight sections that have Division One teams in them, but right. two of them are Section Four, where Ithaca is the only team, and Section Nine, where Monroe is the only team. So you have a couple problems here. A, you have two teams that no matter how bad they are or good they are in any given year, they have no playoff system, automatic bid into the to the state quarterfinals. Second problem is. New York is too big of a state to expand the state tournament. New Jersey, anybody that finishes 500 or above right. automatically makes the state right. tournament. Right, Because everybody's within a couple of hours of anybody. So you could have a first-round game between a team from Trenton and a team from, from Bergen County, and it's not a big deal even if it's a blowout. It's an hour ride on a Tuesday. It's not the end of the world. Whereas if you put everybody in that's 500 and you have, let's say, Nyack Tappanzi struggles to make it to 10-10 and 10 in the last game of the season, they just squeak into the playoffs, and because they just barely made it in and they weren't even expected to be there, they're the 32nd seed in Division One, And the number one seed is Williamsville North. And now on a Tuesday night, <laughs> Nyack Tappanzi has to drive all the way up to Buffalo. Right. To get their butts handed to them by Williamsville North in a meaningless playoff game to drive up. You just can't do it. Right. So the way I figured out to expand the state tournament is you take the runners up in sections 1, 2, and 10, which for those of you that don't know is where we are in Rockland, Westchester area. Um, 2 is the Albany area. 10 is up by Messina. Sure. You take those three runners up. You let Monroe host a four-team tournament. You don't even need a consolation game, so you need six hours of ice. And the winner of that tournament gets the number seven seed in the the semi in the, the state quarterfinals. Then you let Ithaca host the runners-up in Section 3, which is the Syracuse area, 5, which is Rochester, 6, which is Buffalo. And the same thing. The winner of that little four-team tournament gets the eighth spot in the, the quarterfinals. Now you're opening up the tournament to more teams. Right. You're accounting for those sections that might be stacked, like ours is now. Section six is stacked every year. There's always four teams that can make it. A lot of times up in Messina, they're up in section 10, they have two or three teams that can make it. Um, Albany, there's been years where they have. So you're opening it up to more teams to get in there. Allowing second chances for those teams, giving Monroe and Ithaca a playoff system, eliminating a potentially weak team in the state tournament by getting on a down year for Monroe, 
they just don't make it now. Um, and because you do it regionally, it's not even a huge expense on hotels. Yes, you need to book the ice, right. but the section one runner-up is never going to go to hotel room to go up and play at ice time in Newburgh right. because they're all within an hour drive. Sure. You know, even the Albany team would come down. They wouldn't even need a hotel. Right. And because there's no consolation game, if they lose, they don't have to stay anyway. But a team from Albany coming down, that's, that's like an hour, hour and a half drive. I mean, if, you, if you're in Pearl River and you got to go up to play Pauling, that's a longer drive than it would be for a team from uh, from Shenandoah to come down to play sure. at, in Newburgh. So it, it just it makes a ton of sense, and yeah. it's one of those things that sometimes you feel like it makes too much sense to not be happening. Right. But um, you know, I, if only people would listen to me. I know John Moriello <laughs> from the New York State yes. Sports Rights Association took your idea, ran with it, and put it out there. So um, you know, again. That's uh, you know, there's there's a ton of different things that we can do to improve the sport. I love the idea, um, and hopefully we'll see you know what the future brings. You know, last thing, Mike, I credit you with con- with connecting me to Tess Brogan, who, as you know, is one of the driving forces behind the Hudson Valley Girls High School Ice Hockey Initiative. I'm sure she lives. You know, in this, she doesn't live too far from Yeah, no, she lives about a mile away from where we are right now. You also have a daughter who's going into the eighth grade. You know, so I'd love to get your thoughts on the growth and development of the girls' game. I mean, I love it. Um, You know, my daughter, from the time she was about three or four years old, when every kid says, when when you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I want to be a teacher, I want to be a cop, fireman, astronaut, whatever. Um... She didn't want to be a princess. She didn't want to be an astronaut. She wanted to be a suffering hockey player. Um, And because I was always at the rink, she was there a lot too. In fact, the first time she was ever on skates, and I have a picture of it. um, If I had my computer in front of me, I'd show it to you. Um, It was after a suffering game. My wife was there with her. It was before my sons were born. And she changed her into her pajamas after the game because she was going to fall asleep in the car on the way home. And there was no game on after the suffering game, so I ran into the skate rental at Sportorama. I grabbed the smallest pair of skates they had. It was like a size six. They were about the size of an iPhone. Put them on her, took her out on the ice. I was in my sneakers. She was in skates and pajamas, and and I was just kind of dragging her around the ice, and we have a picture of her with this ear-to-ear grin on her face. And that's all she ever wanted to do was play hockey. Yeah. when we started playing travel, we found our way to North Rockland, um, which is kind of a little bit of a conflict of interest, living and suffering. But, sure. you know, North Rockland youth hockey, you don't have to live in North Rockland. And in fact, probably only about half of the organization lives there. So okay. for anybody looking for a youth hockey organization, we got room on every team. Reach out to me. I've been very, <laughs> I've been very impressed when you had the assist benefit game yeah. a couple of years ago. You packed Sportorama. And just, you know, all the people I've met throughout the years, you know, that's a great organization. Yeah. So certainly. But, but there's there's a lot of girls that play. Like most of the teams have two, three, four mm-hmm. girls on them. I mean, they're co-ed teams. Yep. And there are girls travel teams. And elsewhere, I know there's one out of Brewster. There's yep. a Lady Bulldogs. Yep. Um, the Saints have one this year that just started up. So there are girls organizations out there. And it's just becoming bigger and bigger. We do our own Learn to Skate clinic um, from November through February, and there's always girls out there in there, and they graduate into the mites, and they stay with us. 
Um, anytime you look at any Learn to Skate clinic, there's always some long hair hanging out from behind some of the helmets. Um, and it's just awesome. Girls hockey has become so much bigger. Sure. And once this league starts, which for I, – I know you've mentioned it before, but for those who don't know, it's starting up as a club sport this yep. year um, where it's going to be a bunch of merged teams. Not really sure how many yet. Probably four. If we're lucky, maybe five. Um, and then it's going to evolve into a varsity sport the following year. There's four other sections in the state that have it. Um, we would be the fifth. And if one more has it, we can have an official state tournament with an official state champion. Right. Um, That's the goal. Yeah. And again, it's going to give girls a place to play. Not only the girls that are playing now, but um, when little kids don't see an end game. Sure. And when the parents don't see an end game, they're hesitant to put their kid in that sport. Right. A parent, knowing how much hockey costs hesitant to put their kid, uh, their their daughter into hockey knowing that you know she's either going to have to play on boys teams or give it up when she's you know when when she starts you know hitting puberty and the boys start hitting puberty and they get a lot bigger and they hit a lot harder right. and you know it's a lot more difficult but now with you know the 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 girls olympic hockey games being more prevalent on TV than they ever have in the past um the girls the uh, NH I can't remember if it's NHWL or NWHL, but NWHL, right? So they have the you know the girls' professional league, which yep. uh, you know we've gone to a couple of games. Um, it's not the NHL, right? But it's on par with watching you know like a like a minor league game, a junior A game, sure. something like that. So it's a lower level. But what happens is, and now with the high school, they see there is an end game. Yeah, a little girl who's six years old doesn't see a spot on the the Suffern roster, doesn't see a spot on the Pelham roster. But if they see this girls' league, maybe they want to pick up the sport. So I have a feeling once it gets off the ground and start promoting it in the schools sure. and they see the games and they come to the games, the girls are going to want to start to play and all of a sudden it's just going to build itself up. So it might start with four or five teams of merged schools throughout the section, but I, my daughter is going into eighth grade this year. I have a feeling by the time she graduates high school, I wouldn't be shocked to see at least a dozen teams. Still yeah. some mergers, sure, but you know, a, a dozen teams across the section. And there's other states that have girls only leagues. So yes. certainly, you know, there's a lot of different programs that we could, you know, take a look at. I have to tell you, I ran into you at Brewster when you were doing one of those uh, free clinics, and one of my favorite memories was watching. I want to say Carmel was playing, and a couple of girls from the Carmel team left the ice. And just walked right into the other rink yeah. where the Connecticut Whale were yeah. putting on the clinic. So I know there's a lot of buzz. Kudos to Stacy Whirl and to Tess Brogan and everybody else that's behind this uh, this initiative. Um, you know, and I, I hope it works out. I actually recently interviewed um, Abby Ives and Haley Lunny. Abby is the starting goaltender at Quinnipiac, and Haley. Uh, is a forward at um, Providence, right? You know, and they didn't have these kinds of opportunities yeah. when they were growing up. So, and they still found a way. So, I'm hoping that if we can get this league, uh, get some traction, get get more interest, it'll be a real opportunity for all the young ladies out there. Yeah. Well, Mike, you know, we're hitting the 25 minute mark in this segment. I can't thank you enough. Uh, not only for the delicious meal, but certainly for all the memories and the laughs. And uh, and this is exactly why I wanted to have you on. So, I appreciate it. 
Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. This is your boy, Trav. Uh, you're listening to HV Pucks. I've been chatting with Mike Schoenbach uh, about the history of Hudson Valley hockey, more from kind of the Section 1 Rockland end of things. And um, I'll see you at the rink. As the horn sounds on this special off-season edition of HV Pucks, I want to let you know some of the topics for future podcasts. I'm looking to sit down with Jamie Latassa. He coaches the New York Havoc roller hockey team, the Mayapac roller hockey team, and also serves as a coach with the Brewster Lady Bulldogs hockey program. I also had the opportunity to chat with Haley Lunny, Abby Ives, and Kelly McMorrow. All three of them call the Hudson Valley home and are continuing to play women's hockey at the collegiate level. Haley is at Providence College, Abby attends Quinnipiac University, and Kelly is starting at Nazareth College in the fall. Nick Guberti and Tom Natoli are two local guys who both served as emergency backup goalies at Madison Square Garden, and I can't wait to talk to them about their amazing experience. And if there are topics you'd like me to address, please tweet me at TravJack71 as I do this podcast for you. My plan is to release at least one episode per month until the local college hockey teams start back up again in late September. HV Pucks will return to its regular weekly format once the high school hockey season begins in late November. And if you like the music you've heard throughout the show, please be sure to check out the new full-length album, Out of Time, by Fracture, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The new album maintains the same high level of energy as their debut 2015 EP, Broken Walls. You can also find them on Twitter at Fracture underscore Band, on Instagram at Fracture Official, Fracture Band Official on Facebook, and www.fractureofficial.com on the web. My GoFundMe campaign is entitled HV Pucks Fund, and thanks to your generosity, I was able to establish a scholarship for graduating seniors in memory of Dick Kittle, who was a longtime off-ice official and fixture in the Mamaronek sports community. Every donation, no matter how large or small, will help me maintain the scholarship while also providing the best independent hockey coverage possible. I hope you enjoyed this special off-season edition of HV Pucks. This is your boy Trav, a.k.a. 5-Minute Major, and I'll see you at the rink.